John, well, good morning again. Keep your Bible open to Matthew chapter 5, and let's pause and uh, let's pray together. Father, it is encouraging to me to know that as your word says, that um, as the prophet Isaiah says, that your word will not go forth from your mouth without accomplishing everything you desire. It will not return to you void. And so with great confidence and trust and hope, we open up your word this morning, confident that you will do in our lives, in our hearts, in our church family, exactly what you intend to do by your sovereign spirit and through your sovereign and powerful word. And so we rest in that, we hope in that, we trust in that. Pray that you'd begin that work in my own heart. Pray that there would be an alignment of my actions and my intentions. So not be an exercise in hypocrisy. Pray the same for the brothers and sisters that are gathered here this morning, that there will be an alignment of our hearts, an integration of who we are before you, Lord Jesus. You would speak to us, you would move in our hearts, you would change our lives. For we pray this, Jesus, in your strong, powerful, and precious name. Amen. Well, the passage that was just read for us, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 48, is really the, the first part of the body of the Sermon on the Mount. The last two weeks, we've been looking at the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. Two weeks ago, the Beatitudes. Last week, the famous saying of Jesus about being salt and light of the world, of the earth and of the world. Really, the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount through verse 16 of chapter 5, the introduction now, the, real, the body, you might say, of the Sermon on the Mount, the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. We have the thesis statement there in verses 17 through 20, and then an exposition of that in verses 21 and following, this first part of the Sermon on the Mount. And for many, it is a favorite passage of Scripture for them. They love the Sermon on the Mount. Folks inside the church, of course, and also folks outside the church, you might be one of those kinds of people that loves, finds this passage of Scripture, one of the favorites, one of your favorites in all of the Bible. I find that, though, I must say a little ironic, at least for most Christians, that they find this to be their favorite passage of the Bible. I think, for most Christians at least, that they should find this the most frightening passage of the Bible. In fact, scary. Why do I say scary? I say scary because of what Jesus says, he, what he actually says, at least according to most Christians, where Jesus is in the Sermon on the Mount setting forth a moral standard, isn't he? Setting forth a moral standard, and according to most Christians, the way they read the Sermon on the Mount, the moral standard Jesus is setting forth is nothing less than absolute perfection, an impossible ideal. And this moral standard of absolute perfection needs to be met, Jesus says, if we want to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Notice what Jesus says in two key places in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 20 and verse 48, the two key verses for understanding this passage of Scripture 
and I would argue really the whole Sermon on the Mount. Verse 20 and verse 48, you cannot understand the Sermon on the Mount if you don't grapple with what Jesus is after in verse 20 and verse 48, what he means and what he says in verse 20 and verse 48. Check out verse 20, first of all. For I tell you, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Notice what he says in verse 48 then, even perhaps you might say more frightening, more scary. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And notice everything in between verse 20 and verse 48. It doesn't sort of like loosen up the message, at least according to most Christians, lighten up the load, at least the way most Christians read it. These six illustrations or many sermons of what the exceeding righteousness is that Jesus is talking about, where if you look there, beginning of verse 21, six little mini sermons, lessons from the Old Testament that Jesus then interprets and applies. Jesus' interpretation of the Old Testament law, each beginning with a, but I say to you, you've heard it said, but I say to you. Many Christians reading that as, as in the following way, that what Jesus is saying in these six little illustrations is this, you know how demanding the Old Testament law was? Well, I'm demanding even more. And so for many Christians... The way they read the Sermon on the Mount is it is setting forth a moral standard, the entrance requirement into the kingdom of heaven, and the moral standard Jesus is setting forth is an impossible ideal. Jesus is calling for and demanding and insisting on perfection, which none of us, of course, can ever attain to. And so one well-known preacher, John MacArthur, who I respect quite a lot, he comments on the Sermon on the Mount, saying this, it's representative of the way many preachers and pastors and, and Christians read the Sermon on the Mount. He says this about chapter 5, verse 20, about this exceeding righteousness. He, sa he says this, listen to this, quote, God not only requires inner righteousness, but perfect righteousness. And then he quotes chapter 5, verse 48, about being perfect, and he says this, to be qualified for God's kingdom, we must be as holy as the king himself. That standard is so infinitely high that even the most self-righteous person would not dare claim to possess it or be able to attain it. And so you see why I trust that I say it is ironic that people are so fond of the Sermon on the Mount, at least in the way many people interpret it. Because it seems the way most people interpret it to be setting forth a standard that they themselves could never possibly meet. What I want to show you this morning, though, in this morning's message is that this very common way of interpreting the Sermon on the Mount is a very wrong way of reading the Sermon on the Mount. Note carefully, though, it's not wrong theology. God does demand sinless perfection of his creatures. It's why Jesus had to die. It's not wrong theology. It's just not the theology of the Sermon on the Mount. 
And I want to try to show you that from the Sermon on the Mount this morning. What I want to try to show you is that Jesus isn't calling in the Sermon on the Mount for sinless perfection. Rather, he's calling for integrity. Not flawlessness, but wholeness. Not total and absolute moral purity, but sincerity of heart, humility, brokenness, repentance, confession, and faith. This is the moral standard of the Sermon on the Mount. Not an impossible ideal, but a realistic vision of life as a follower of Jesus. This stuff applies to all of us. It's not an absolute moral perfection kind of ideal. It is rather a realistic description of life following Jesus. But before I show you how that works, let's back up for just a minute, and I want to think with with you for a moment about what happens when people, when Christians think that the Sermon on the Mount calls for absolute perfection, as many Christians do. What then do they do with the Sermon on the Mount when they think that it's calling for sinless perfection? There are basic, two basic responses. The first is this, I call it the Ascend Mount Everest approach. The first approach is this, you do your very best to meet the standard. It's like ascending Mount Everest. It's nearly impossible. You'll probably die trying, but let's go for it. And many Christians down through the ages and the centuries of the church have read the Sermon on the Mountain, and they've tried to do this very thing. They've seen it as a holding out this ideal standard, and they've tried to strive to attain it, and some fairly successfully. Catholic tradition is full of folks who have approached the Sermon on the Mount in just this kind of way. So too in certain branches of Protestantism. In fact, some of the most famous Protestants the last 500 years have had this kind of approach to the Sermon on the Mount. One of the famous kind of ways of talking about it is Christian perfectionism. John Wesley is a very famous advocate of this view. But in this approach, the ascending Everest approach to the Sermon on the Mount, it almost always proves to be morally exhausting and spiritually defeating. It leads, I think, to either self-righteousness, if you attain a measure of success with it, or despair, if you get morally exhausted and feel spiritually defeated. The second approach is to, you might say, surrender before you even get started. It's to admit defeat and own the fact that no one's ever going to live up to the ideal standard of perfection laid out in the Sermon on the Mount or have their righteousness surpass the scribes and the Pharisees. And so you kind of admit defeat before you even get going. You surrender before you even get going. But all is not lost in this reading of the Sermon on the Mount. All is not lost because... The impossible demand of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is setting that forth to drive you to Jesus, to force you to look outside of yourself and look to Jesus, who fulfills the impossible moral demand on your behalf. So the impossible moral standard of the Sermon on the Mount serves to drive you to Jesus, to his forgiveness, to his grace, 
and to His mercy. And of course, I want to say there's an awful lot right with that way of approaching the Sermon on the Mount. It's always good, isn't it, to look to Jesus for grace and for mercy. But I also want to say there's a danger with this approach. It might be your approach, and I want to say there's a danger with this approach. I call it, this danger, I call it the tragic irony of the impossible ideal. When you know there is no possibility of you ever living up to the standard of righteousness laid out in the Sermon on the Mount, you know what happens. You stop trying. You tell yourself that it can't be done and that it ultimately doesn't matter one way or another because, well, Jesus has done it for you. And so the impossible ideal of the Sermon on the Mount, you say to yourself, it really has no real relevance to my life because it's an impossible ideal. What relevance could it have to my life? And so you give up trying to live into the vision of the Sermon on the Mount. And you say to yourself, maybe not out loud, but in your heart, in your mind, Sure, Jesus is talking here about things like lust and anger and hatred for your enemies, but, but we all know that what he says is an impossible ideal. So there's no real point in trying to pursue it, is there? I mean, he's got it all covered for us anyways, doesn't he? You see, that's the tragic irony of the impossible ideal. You say of the Sermon on the Mount, it's so unrealistic that it becomes entirely irrelevant to your actual daily concrete life. Now, what I want to say is this, the good news, the good news is that Jesus isn't calling us to absolute moral perfection in the Sermon on the Mount. He's not setting forth an impossible moral ideal. Rather, what he's doing is he's setting forth a vision of what it looks like for his followers to follow hard after him. He's not describing absolute perfection. What he's doing is he's describing, check it out, what you, can, what you can expect of your life as a disciple of Jesus. This is a realistic description of life, a life following Jesus. And I think we see this, ironically enough, in all places, in verse 48 of chapter 5. Look there. Arguably, the whole Sermon on the Mount hinges on this one verse. Chapter 5, verse 20 is really important, but I think this is the most important verse in the whole Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 5, verse 48. And you might even say the whole interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount hinges on that one little word translated in English in verse 48 as the word perfect. Perfect. Notice how verse 48 summarizes everything that's come before. That's why it begins with therefore. You therefore must be perfect. Jesus lays out his thesis in verses 17 through 20, and then a series of illustrations in 21 through 47. And then in verse 48, he brings the whole thing together with one summarizing statement that goes like this. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect perfect. For many, and for obvious reasons, at first blush, it looks like Jesus is holding out an impossible standard moral perfection. 
Seems to be exactly what the Bible is saying. The only problem is this is not what the word translated perfect actually means. When it was originally translated into English several centuries ago, it did have bigger connotations. But when you and I hear the word perfect now, read it in our Bibles, it doesn't have that full meaning. What it means for us now is this, flawlessness, faultlessness, without any imperfection whatsoever, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But that, friends, is not what the word teleos, the Greek word here translated perfect, actually means. Rather, it means this, being whole, being complete, having integrity, being genuine, even being authentic. And so what Jesus is calling for in the Sermon on the Mount is not absolute perfection, try at it, have at it. It's not what he's calling for. What he's calling for is a life of wholeness, completeness, or you might say integrity and authenticity. What does that mean? It means he's calling for an alignment between Your actions and your intentions, between your desires and your behavior, so that what you do flows from who you are, that is, from what you really want and really desire. What he's calling for is no more play acting or no more just doing the right thing when you have no desire to do the right thing. He's calling for his followers to be teleos, that is, to be whole, to be complete, to be, you might say, integrated or undivided in their hearts, to have what you do reflect what you desire. It's what Jesus says is true of the Heavenly Father. Be teleos, whole and complete, just as your Heavenly Father is teleos, whole and complete. What is he saying? about God. He's saying about God that there is, check it out, never a gap in God between what God does and what God wants to do. God never plays the hypocrite. God never just does something when his heart is over here. There is always an alignment. There is always an integration. There is never a gap between who God is and what God does. He's whole. He's complete. He's integrated. He is never disintegrated as we so often are, where we do one thing, but our heart is somewhere else entirely. That, you see, is what Jesus is calling for in the Sermon on the Mount. That's the moral standard of the Sermon on the Mount. An authenticity, an alignment, an integrity, an integration of your actions and your heart so that desire and behavior hang together. That's what it means to be teleos, as your heavenly Father is teleos. 
Maybe an illustration will help at this point, and we can go through the Gospel of Matthew and find a wonderful, I think, illustration of exactly what Jesus is talking about here in verse 48, about being teleos, about what we translate as perfect, as your Heavenly Father is perfect teleos. We can go to Matthew chapter 19, the only other place in Matthew's Gospel where this little Greek word teleos actually appears. And in using it there, it's meant for us to see it in light of the Sermon on the Mount. This is the illustration of what Jesus is talking about in verse 48. And it is the story you may know in chapter 19 of Matthew's gospel of the rich young ruler. Who you may remember the story comes and asks Jesus what he must do to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Or as it says in verse 16, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus dialogues with this rich young ruler a little bit, and then Jesus says this in verse 21, quote, if you would be perfect, that's the way it's translated in English, if you would be teleos, go, sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Now, what's Jesus saying to him? Is he saying... Hey, listen, if you sell what you have and give to the poor, you're suddenly going to be morally perfect and flawless without any faults? Of course not. Rather, what Jesus is saying is that you will not be whole or complete or living with integrity between your attitude and actions until you sell your possessions and follow after Jesus. Or let me put it this way. What do you think Jesus thinks is wrong with the rich young ruler? Is it that he lacks absolute moral perfection? Or is it that he has a divided heart? I mean, Jesus sees this guy, admires Jesus. But Jesus also sees that he doesn't admire Jesus enough to want to surrender everything to follow Jesus. In other words, he doesn't want to be a genuine follower of Jesus. And so he's not whole. He's not complete. His heart and his head are not integrated. His attitude and actions, they don't align. He's disintegrated. He's what the Bible would call double-minded, and therefore he cannot please God. That's the problem with the rich young ruler. It's also the problem with the Pharisees. That's why Jesus says of the Pharisees, you may recall, that they are hypocrites, the Pharisees. The Pharisees are quite content, as we sometimes are, to divorce action from intention. As long as you got the right religious actions, it doesn't matter what your intention is. Jesus calls that hypocrisy. Not the kind of hypocrisy we normally think of the way we use the word in our culture. In our culture, right, we use the word hypocrisy when we say someone says one thing and does another thing. It's not the way Jesus uses the word hypocrisy in the Sermon on the Mount and in the Gospels. When Jesus talks about hypocrisy, it's not you say one thing and you do another thing. Rather, when Jesus talks about hypocrisy, it's this, you do one thing, but you want to do a different thing. 
That's a problem with the Pharisees. They fast, but inwardly they're craving food and craving praise from other people. They tithe, but inwardly they're covetous for more food, excuse me, for more wealth. They pray, right? Long, as we're going to see next week, chapter 6, long prayers, very impressive flowing prayers. I mean, they got the actions that sort of seem to line up with the law, but their hearts are a mile away. And so they pray, but inwardly, they don't care whether God hears them. They want other people to hear them and to be impressed by what they hear. And so it's like a Christian who comes to church but really wishes he was home sleeping in or gives a tithe but really wishes he had that money to spend on a new car or joins a small group but doesn't really want people meddling in his private life or apologizes to his spouse but still inwardly despises her. Like the actions are right. But the heart, the attention, the desire is in another zip code altogether. You know what Jesus calls that? Hypocrisy. You do one thing, but that's not what you desire to do. There's no heart backing up and giving rise to the action. You're just muscling it out as an act of the will. That's hypocrisy. That's the problem with the rich young ruler. And so, what Jesus is calling for in the Sermon on the Mount is this. Unless your righteousness exceeds the hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. An alignment of action and intention. That's the righteousness that exceeds the scribes and Pharisees. Not moral perfection, but integrity, authenticity. There's a genuineness of desire and intention backing up what it is you are doing. It's what Jesus is calling for in the Sermon on the Mount. That is the moral standard of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus isn't calling for an impossible ideal. But let me say this. He is calling for a miracle. He's calling for our hearts to be connected to our actions. And as you know, as well as I know, that is not all that easy to come by. In fact, it doesn't happen naturally. It only happens supernaturally. It is a miracle. It is a miracle of the grace of God. To take a fallen human being and have his or her heart align with his or her actions so that there is a wholeness, there is an integrity, there is a genuineness, there is an authenticity, they are not play-acting, they are not acting the hypocrite, that is a miracle of the grace of God. That's why Jesus came and died on a cross. 
not only to forgive our sins and the billions of ways we fall short of the glory of God, dying on the cross to forgive our sins, but also dying on the cross so that he could rise and give us new birth, a new heart, and praise God, new desires, so that we no longer have to play the part as though we really want to love God when we really don't. You want to know the underlying problem of the the Old Testament? It's exactly that. That's the hermeneutical key that unlocks the whole tragic story of the Old Testament. Trying to live up to the call of God with no heart, no desire. And this is the great promise of the new covenant, which Jesus inaugurates by his death on the cross. This is what was promised in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant because the folks under the Old Covenant, they knew something was not quite working out. And what was not quite working out wasn't that God just is too demanding. Like if God would just abolish and loosen up this law a little bit, everything would be cool. Like we could finally keep the law of God if he would just lower the standards. You see, that was some were hoping and thinking and construing Jesus' ministry to be exactly that. And what does Jesus say in verse 17 and following? That's not what I'm about. I'm not solving the problem externally by lowering the standard. I'm solving the problem internally by giving you a new heart. New desire. Moses, when he was leading the people through the wilderness, I mean, he learned a lot of lessons leading the people for 40 years through the wilderness, right? (laughs) And they get to the edge of the land of promise, and Moses can't enter in, right? You may recall the story, Deuteronomy chapter 30, kind of he preaches his whole sermon, readying the people of Israel to enter into the land of promise for 40 years in the wilderness. And he says this, the kind of punchline of his climactic sermon before he goes off and dies and they enter into the land of promise. He says this in Deuteronomy chapter 30, you know what you need, Israel? You need a circumcised heart. They had hard hearts. They feigned obedience to God. They really had no appetite or desire or affection for God. Moses warned them of this. And this is the prophetic critique that runs all the way through the entire Old Testament. This is the problem with the people of Israel under the Old Covenant. Ezekiel then prophesies and promises a new covenant that's coming in the future, and it's going to be a a miracle. It's going to solve the problem. And how's that going to happen? He says, God is going to sprinkle water on you and cleanse you. He's going to give you a new heart and a new spirit, he says. Prophet Jeremiah picks up on the same thing, and he says it even more provocatively. You know how he says it. He says God in the new covenant is going to take his law and write it on your heart. What does that mean? What does that mean? That means he's going to bring into alignment the desires of your heart and his desire for your life. That's what that means. Your intentions are going to match his intentions for you. He's going to take his law outside of you and write it on your heart. That is, give you the desires to do what the law calls you to. He's going to write it on your heart. 
This is what Jesus has come to do. This is what Jesus is setting forth in the Sermon on the Mount. Not abolishing the law, so we don't have to do it, but changing people from the inside out so that they can do it with integrity and sincerity and authenticity and no hypocrisy. The sermon, you see, doesn't call for perfection, but it does require a miracle. It requires the miracle of the new birth. And so I trust that for some of you, maybe many of you this morning, this framework for thinking about the Sermon on the Mount is good news to you. Unfortunately, we're not going to be able to dig into all the details this morning, but I, I pray and hope that looking at verse 20, looking at verse 48, and making sense of them in light of Jesus' intention is good news to you that it makes the Sermon on the Mount relevant to your life. Not an impossible ideal, but a realistic description of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. And so I hope and pray this is good news to you this morning. But I recognize it still leaves us with an important and a very, very practical question. And it's, what do you do when you don't have the desire to do what you know you should do? <laughs> when you don't have that sincere intention. When you don't have that right motivation. When you really don't want to be forgiving, but you kind of got to muscle through the forgiveness. Like, we all have that experience. What do you do in that moment? Because let's face it, that is a, at least for me, that's like a daily experience. What do you do there? Do you just kind of push through it and say, well, the only thing that matters is like doing what needs to be done, doing the right thing, doing my duty. And hearts and intentions, that's like optional extra. That's kind of nice, but if it's not there, it's no big deal. We're just going to plow through and press through and grit through and do the right Christian thing. It's not the best strategy. Because what that will tend to do is that will tend to harden you in the way of the scribes and the Pharisees where you get very comfortable bluffing your way through the Christian faith and Christian life, where you may even get pretty good at performing the outward duties, but inwardly your heart is on another planet altogether. And you've done it enough times that you've gotten comfortable with the breakdown and the gap that it no longer even bothers you. It's just the way you've learned to live the Christian life. That is very dangerous. By the way, parents... Let's be careful of not training our children in hypocrisy. Where we insist on outward conformity to certain behavioral standards and we don't attend with the same kind of intensity to the heart. And we're training little scribes and Pharisees in our own homes. Let's be careful of it's not the best strategy just to push through it as though, like the Pharisees and scribes, action is really the only thing that ultimately counts. Rather, the best strategy when you see the gap in your own soul between intention and action is this, to acknowledge it, to ask God for help, to trust God will give the help, and to act, to acknowledge, to ask, to trust, 
and to act. To acknowledge, confess that, God, my heart is not where I want it to be. It's just not there. I wish it was there. You wish it was there, but it's not there to confess and acknowledge and repent that I am not where I need to be. To not just plow through, but to own the fact that we are falling short of the glory of God. To own it, acknowledge it, confess it, and repent. Then secondly, to ask God. Ask God for forgiveness. Ask God for empowerment. Ask God for His Spirit to give you what you do not have but need. God's own desire being the desire of your heart through His Spirit. To acknowledge, to ask, and when you have asked, to trust. To trust that God will answer that prayer as you've asked it in faith. To believe that the grace is coming. God will give the desires. God will give the grace and the empowerment. And then fourthly, when you've acknowledged, asked, and trust, to act. Don't leave out the acting. Act. Need to do what you need to do. Need to, let's say, get up and go to church in the morning, or give of your time and treasures and talents, or pray with your spouse or children, or have the hard conversation with a colleague or friend, or forgive the grudge or the bitterness you've been holding against a person who's wronged you. You need to do those things. It's right to do those things. But to do those things, acknowledging, asking, and trusting as the lead-in to acting. And when you get to the other side of the acting and you still see in your own soul, hey, there's still a gap between my intention and my actions, then what do you do? Answer, you acknowledge, you ask, you trust, and you act. All over again. But Pastor Todd, that sounds like a hamster wheel you're putting me on. This acknowledge, ask, trust, act, that sounds like striving for moral perfection all over again. That's an impossible ideal. I'm just going to be running around and around and around and around because I'm never going to get there. And that sounds incredibly defeating. That is defeat for me, isn't it? That's victory. That's victory. Because that is the essence of living the Christian life. That is not defeat for you. That is victory. That is precisely the kind of heart that is tender towards God and trembles at his word, that doesn't bluff our way through the Christian life, but stops regular, regularly to confess that we fall short, to ask for grace and mercy and help and forgiveness, to trust that it's coming, and then to act. That is the essence of living the Christian life by faith. It's not at all like the Pharisee who famously in Matthew's gospel, when he is praying next to the poor publican, that lousy sinner, prays this way with head held high and arms outreached and eyes open, God, I thank you that I am not like this loser over here who can't get his act together. Rather, what Jesus is calling for, the righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, the teleos that is whole and complete and integrated with heart and head, integration and connection and alignment, is to do and to be the publican 
who stands far off, beats his chest and asks God for grace and for mercy. This is the one, Jesus says, who goes home justified. This is the one who will enter into the kingdom of heaven. This is the one who pleases God. This is the one who lives with integrity. This is the one whose righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. And brothers and sisters, this is the one who is teleos, who is whole and complete, even as their heavenly Father is teleos, whole and complete. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, for his death, his standing in for all of our sin on the cross at Calvary, that as we sang, he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus, we thank you for your perfect atonement for our sin. Father, we honor you in the perfection of your holiness. Lord Jesus, we thank you as well for your resurrection life, the pouring out of your Holy Spirit, for the gift of the new covenant, both the forgiveness of our sins and a new heart that causes us to walk in your ways. Thank you that through your Spirit you bring in our lives an alignment between our will and your will. Between our desires and your desire for us. Between our intentions and your intention for us. Thank you for the gift of the new covenant. Forgiveness and teleos, completeness, wholeness, integrity. Thank you that we do not have to play the part of the hypocrite. But Lord Jesus, in brokenness and humility and confession, can walk by faith in dependence upon you. Empower us to do that very thing. We pray this and ask this in your name. Amen.